going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Who wants to play election bingo? I can't believe this came across my desk today and there's like three different versions of it where it's everything from fringe candidate accuses mainstream media of bias to you can't trust a liberal to greater than a 50% of a party's candidates are female to sewer rats to fake news to leader wearing a rainbow scarf hat or leggings to massive cuts and brutal cuts used in the same sentence to climate change downplayed short-lived scandal after candidate uses profanity man oh man should post this up on social media put a shot glass on every one of them and see how far you last i guarantee you you won't make it through the afternoon it's calgary today on 770 chqr greetings and salutations my friends a very happy monday a whole lot of politics to get to today uh it was the flavor du jour over the course of the last few days in fact and we will dive into today a little bit but want to uh, go a little bit back and, and talk issues again I, I know that we're some of us are getting really caught up in everything that's been said over the last week or so but i i I'm going to strive to really keep it on the issues. Uh, There are some things that we just can't ignore as much as you want to. And I'll use this example right off the hop is can we please stop using the term smear campaign? If you posted something on social media or if you said something in a local newspaper or if you did something, said something own it. Stop using it as if it's this new thing, like all of a sudden, oh, it's a smear campaign. No, it's not. You said it. Own it. It's just, it's baffling to me that we have this idea that I shouldn't be responsible for what I post on social media. Instead, it's the other guy's fault because they found it. I had this one discussion over the weekend about, oh, they're, they're going back in time and going through my social media posts. Of course they are. If you want to get into politics, the f- rule number one of getting into politics right now should be clear all your social media because you don't know what's going to be taken out of context. If it is even being taken out of context, the game is being played by both sides. So get off your high horse on the smear campaign thing. I've had it up to here with it. There's no such thing. Straight up. Own it. All right. I've got my frustrations out. That's been brewing since Friday. So I apologize for that. Now on to the real issues. We're going to talk education with Marilyn Dennis uh, from the board, uh, Calgary Board of Education, in just a couple of minutes to talk about some of the things that uh, they think should be front and center for this election campaign. We'll also talk a little bit later on. I'll talk to Chris Bloomer. Uh, from the Canadian Energy Pipeline Association after 5 o'clock. It's not something that they were hoping would be permeating during this election campaign, but is it really just about uh, pipelines? And beyond that is, is there a quick fix once we get another party in power, if we get another party in power? So Chris will talk a little bit about that. And there's been a lot of questions over the last week about uh, registering for the election. What are the deadlines? All that kind of thing. Drew uh, Drew Westwater from Elections Alberta will be here to clear the air after 5.30. But again, we're going to go right to the nitty gritty and talk a little education next here on Calgary Today.
All right. Like I said, the big issue here is let's now stay on topics here and and on issues of this election campaign. Again, I want to talk about pipelines. I want to talk about education. I want to talk about healthcare, infrastructure, uh, child care, which has been a big one today in in the news. We'll get to that. Uh, We're hoping to to really nail in on that one tomorrow. Uh, We'll also talk uh, about the economy. They're all issues. As much as we're trying to pit one issue against the other, I'm a firm believer that we can to do them all. Can we stop trying to trivialize one over the other? Oh, the economy's not as, as important as social issues. Oh, social issues aren't as important as uh, economic issues. It's all important. Let's get to the bottom of some of those issues. And one of those issues surrounds education. And what are we doing to forward the conversation on education uh, Marilyn Dennis is one of the trustees with the Calgary Board of Education. Uh, the board, along with several others, talking today about some of the issues. Marilyn joins us now on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. When you look at the election, what do you think should be priority number one in the eyes of parents who have kids in the CBE? Well, we have a top three for the CBE, and those are public education matters to all of us. Every child has the right to learn, and schools are key to student success. Around public education matters to all of us. Um, We know that public education must always be a top priority. Um, Public education shapes the future of our communities each and every day. So our graduates from the CBE are the future professionals, future engineers, architects, um, accountants, uh, future um, carpenters, teachers, um, coaches, and even broadcasters. So so the work that uh, we do with our students every day impacts our communities, not only today, but for years to come. How important is it to be able to cater to that wide spectrum? Because as you mentioned, you go everywhere from uh, carpenters to electricians to your geophysicists. I mean, you've got a, the wide spectrum and, and you guys are dealing with every single one of them. That's right, and and that kind of speaks to our other two our other two um, pieces there around every child has the right to learn, and that schools are a key to student success. So we have. Um you know, great demand to modernize our spaces to sort of meet those um, future and current education needs for our students so that they can contribute to our communities in the future. And so we, we are going to be looking to the, to the parties this year to ask for a commitment. You know, are they going to be funding new schools and major modernizations so that we can have those learning spaces that our students need to prepare them for the days ahead? And beyond that, I think, is the idea of actually being able to put bodies in those schools as well. I feel like we're, and I say this about every industry, it seems like, in, in this province, is, yeah, you can build big, shiny things, but you've got to be able to have the staff and, and the students inside of each of them. So how important is that plan in terms of not just the building, but also making sure it's full down the road? Yeah, so, I mean, we do need funding for growth. Right, so we we gain approximately 2,000 students every year into the CBE. And just to put that into perspective, that's about the equivalent of four new elementary schools every year. Talk a little bit. Oh, go ahead. Right, and just that perspective, right? It's massive when you think about it in terms of actual buildings. And, and so we do need funding for growth. We need to be able to hire teachers to service those students and other professionals as well, right? We need administrators. We need support staff. We need um, facility support for those buildings. 
and to, to be able to provide the best possible learning environments for those kids. So that funding for growth is huge. Every single student, every single student um, has the right to learn and they need to be supported in the way they need to be supported in order to be effective in their success. How much leeway or how much work has been done towards dealing with the classroom size issue? Do you think you guys are making up some ground on that front over the last few years? Well, if you, um, the province actually did an operational review recently, and they found that the CBE had the smallest class sizes in kindergarten to grade three. So the province has provided funding for classroom sizes, um, but that funding is targeted to K to three, and the CBE uses 100% of that targeted funding towards reducing class sizes in K to three. That the grant used to actually cover K to six, but it was rolled back to cover K to three. So we are, you know, we do target that funding in the K to three class sizes. How important is it for the average listener who's listening to this? Try to compartmentalize the different levels because a classroom of thirty in K to three or K to six is going to be much different than a classroom of thirty in nine to twelve. And I think it's even more complex than that, to be honest. The, it's not only the, the grade configuration, but it's also it's the ability of the teacher. It's the, it's the abilities of the students in that class. So the makeup of the class has a significant impact on the complexity of that classroom. And so, you know, for example, you could have a physics 30 class in high school where every single one of those students, and maybe there's you know, 32 students in that Physics 30 class, every one of those students can work independently, have a good grasp on the English language, have a strong grasp on academic language. Academic language. Um, they can um, take instruction quickly and understand it. That The complexity in that classroom of, you know, over 30 students is much different than, say, another class where you have students who are English language learners, who have reading challenges, who struggle with math. And so it's not so much even the class size, but the complexity within that classroom that has a significant impact. So class size is only part of the conversation. It's the complexity and the makeup of the class that's in my opinion, the larger part of that conversation. Yeah, and it's something that I've talked a little bit about on, on this program in the past is the idea of inclusive education. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm a proponent of it, but at the same time, there are limits to that inclusivity before you need to uh, figure out a better, better case scenario so you're not, uh, for example, uh, getting in the way of the education of the 29 other students in the 30-student classroom, that kind of thing. Is that something sure. that needs to be talked about a little bit more is just what exactly that all entails and how we're dealing with that inclusive education? Yes, and that's been one of our main asks. So as trustees, we've been advocating um, for the last few months really around that inclusive education piece and just supports for our special, um, our special learning needs of students. And so we have, a, we have a funding gap of approximately $80 million uh, when you consider all of our special needs students. And so just one of those pieces, for example, is that uh, we spent $136 million to support students with special learning needs last year, um, but the province only provided us $78 million in funding. 
Um, and that's one example of one of one of the shortfalls that that um, is part of that eighty million dollar funding gap. We've also got a shortfall in special needs transportation. We also have a shortfall in supports for English language learners. We also have a have a, a shortfall in our support for our indigenous students. And so that has been one of our big asks: is that you know if the if the funding from the government would help to close those gaps for us around those complex learning needs, then we would have additional funds to put into classrooms across the system. Is there, you, you talk about resources and the need for more resources. And I wonder about oversight myself, I'll be honest, is okay, if there's a certain amount of funding that is guaranteed to a school for an aid, that kids should get the aid, but yet it may not be happening because of the resources available. And so does this need to be a province-wide thought or should the the funding be uh, at a, a board level? What are your thoughts on that side of the equation? I would say those decisions need to come school by school. I think the the greatest benefit to boards is having the flexibility around deciding how that money is going to be spent. Um, School boards and principals and classroom teachers, they know their students the best, and so they, they understand the support that those students need the best. And so having flexibility in terms of how that funding is used um, is, ends up being to the greatest benefit of the student. Another big piece of this is the massive curriculum overhaul that is being done right now. What kinds of questions do you have of the different parties heading into this election when it comes to that? Because there has been some, some people have thrown out the idea of, hey, maybe we can scrap this thing because it's a giant waste of time. You know, our biggest ask around the curriculum is that it's supported um, adequately so that we can have our educators uh, resourced and ready to deliver the new curriculum. That's that's our biggest ask around the curriculum is that that it that the funding follows it so that our educators can be ready to deliver it effectively to all of our students. In the past, as I've talked to trustees and different boards, the the question of sustainable, predictable funding has always yeah. come up. Is yep. that something that you feel like you guys have moved a little closer to? Has the has the the goalposts moved on that for you guys yet? I would say that we always have a desire for sustainable and predictable funding. Absolutely. I mean, that, that kind of partners with our ask to, you know, fund for growth, to, you know, essentially guarantee that we're going to continue to get new learning spaces, that we're going to continue to get modernized learning spaces. I mean, that kind of predictability helps. You mentioned as well uh, the uh, accessible transportation issues, but and transportation as a whole has always been a hot-button one as well. Uh, Where we stand there, how does the province bridge that gap that still exists? So they they provide funding targeted towards transportation, and then it is up to boards to be able to provide transportation within that targeted funding Mm -hmm. and within the legislation attached to fund, to uh, transportation have they been able to like because I know that now was a question in the past as well is hey they can they can fix the the formula that goes towards it uh, the transportation uh, amounts has that been addressed at all they did a there was a survey that was done um, to the Alberta public 
asking about transportation and what the priorities were for Albertans around transportation and that uh, that survey closed on June 15th of last year. Um, the results have not been released to boards around that. Um, what we do know from the government right now is that they are not planning to change any regulations soon. So the existing regulations that we have will remain in place. Um, and in terms of stability, it's good to know that, and then we at least know what we're dealing with next year. Um, that is much easier than having regulations change frequently, uh, because that becomes a challenge for parents. Absolutely. One final question for you. Sure. When people are heading to the polls over the next few weeks here, whether it's through the advanced polls or actual election day, what's mm-hmm. one question that you think... Albertans should be keeping in mind, and Calgarians in particular, as they go to the polls and think about who they need to vote for? So we actually have three questions that we would we would love uh, the public to ask of our parties. And so the questions are, will your party commit to funding for growth every year for the next four years? How will your party address the gaps in funding for children with special needs? And will your party commit to building new schools and completing needed modernizations? I'm sure a lot of people with a vested interest in education will be asking those three questions. Marilyn, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. My pleasure. Anytime. Just before we get to break, this text really hits home because I've heard this story multiple times. We brought up education. My kid gets $18,000 of funding for an aid, but gets zero one-to-one help. The funding is divided out around the school as there is more than just him who needs the help. And then his mom is expected to accompany him for trips, etc. How is that right? That's a question that I would reckon needs to be asked during this election campaign. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. It is called Calgary's Electric and Low Emissions Vehicles Strategy. It's out. uh, It was released last week and talks about the role of electric vehicles in our city heading over the next number of decades. And right off the bat, it says, although electric vehicles are currently more expensive to purchase than comparable gasoline-powered vehicles, they are more economical to operate and maintain. Battery prices will continue to fall, with multiple analysts projecting EVs will cost the same or less than the equivalent gas-powered cars by the mid-2020s. And so it's something that the city thinks they need to prepare for down the line as the demand rises. And one of those people who's at the front lines is Jim Style, the co-owner of Go Electric here in Calgary. And he joins us now to talk a little bit more about this report. Jim, thanks so much for the time today. You're welcome. When you look at this report that was released by the city surrounding its uh, electric vehicle strategy, what are a couple of the big takeaways that you took from that strategy? Uh, well, the one that I think is most important is education, that people are uh, really looking to figure out exactly what electric cars mean for them. That'd be the big one. And then the other one is they are um, working really hard at building up some infrastructure for charging. And I, as they say in their report, you know, that will help people get over their range anxiety. Although I'd qualify that by saying that I think for most people, they're just going to charge their vehicles at home anyways. Mm -hmm. Is that a big aspect of why we haven't seen a big buy-in here in Calgary, or or at least as big as everybody kind of hoped or dreamed uh, originally, was just the the range and and the ability to be able to go a long distance, especially given, I mean, here in Alberta, it seems like you got to go about an hour, even even here in Calgary, you got to go an hour to get get home or get to work every day. Um, You know, I think it's, 
it's partially the range and it's partially the cost. The electric vehicles have been available in in, uh, in Calgary for a while, but the uh, you know the Tesla is very expensive. Bless their hearts. Like don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. um, but the for most people who just want to buy an electric vehicle for ninety five percent of their driving range should not really be an issue for a large percentage of Calgarians. You know, who I think the average commute is forty two kilometers in Canada. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the the cold aspect as well, because I know that's been a point of contention is, are these things going to last when we get into our minus 20, minus 30 weather that we seem to do, you know, six months of the year? Uh, yeah, same uh, same sort of thing. You have to buy the right vehicle. And they, they, you know, you can get like a little smart car. And, uh, you know, I took one out in minus 20 a couple of weeks ago, and I drove it. Uh, for an hour and a half or so, but I only got 66 kilometers range out of it. For my daily commute, I can drive that car three days without charging it. So it really depends on what your needs are, and but you have to consider the winter mm-hmm. because depending upon whether you're parking it like in a heated garage and parking it at work and charging it at work, when when you go when you think about an electric car, you want to be able to plan to have a vehicle which can survive the winter where your range could drop as much as 50%. Like, it is a number, 50%. You park it outside in minus 25, unplugged, and when you get in in the morning, instead of having 120 kilometers range, you're going to have 60 kilometers range. So lots of people, that works just fine, but not for everybody. The question becomes then is once everything does line up, we talked about the cold weather, we talked about uh, the distances and that kind of thing. What do you think it's going, what do you think will take for the average consumer, I guess, to buy into the notion of owning one of these cars versus "Eh, it's just a fad and it'll all go away, which seems to be what some people do believe. Oh, well, I I haven't heard, I haven't heard a lot of people say (laughs) that they, if they think it's just a fad, it's it's more or less the opposite. But I think it's that early adopter mentality that there aren't that many people who are comfortable with something that is uh, quite new. So uh, there, I think the environmental angle is probably what drives most people to purchase an electric car right now. And then once they look into it, they they're easily convinced that it's actually the it's the smart thing to do financially as well as um, as environmentally. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Does Alberta face a different problem than, say, Calgary in and, in and of itself is not that big of an issue, especially if you don't do any commuting uh, outside city limits? Does that pose a different problem for those, I'll say, rural Albertans, for example, who uh, have to go a long distance to get to the city to do their grocery shopping and that kind of thing? Does that does that become a big focal point for the industry and, and for yourselves going forward? Oh, oh, yeah, that's a really good question, Joe. I think if people can get their head around, uh, a lot of people own two vehicles, and I think if people can get their head around, I'm going to buy an electric car, and it's going to work for... 90 to 95 percent of my driving but keep that one gas vehicle for those times when yeah i'm going to make a trip to um i don't know lake louise skiing in the winter or if you're if you live quite far you know if you live out of town somewhere you have to make those longer drives and you have to decide okay is 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 having a second electric vehicle for my second vehicle going to make sense but to buy a pure electric vehicle you're going to pay a lot of money 
for something that has those, that 40 kilometer range. Or you can get something that the commuter type vehicle for a heck of a lot less. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. The the final question for you on that front then is what do we do to or what does the industry need to do uh, to make sure or maybe even private business to get people on board with this? Is it it a matter of more infrastructure for charging? Is it a matter of what do you think needs to be done over the next couple of years to get people moving towards even just thinking or talking about the possibility of, as you mentioned, that second vehicle becoming an electric vehicle? Uh, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure. The city is going to take some, um, you know, make some efforts to promote electric vehicles from, and from an environmental standpoint, uh, they're very well, um, they're very smart to do so. Electric vehicles pollute a lot. Well, gas vehicles are like the major source of pollution in Calgary. And then there's the whole climate climate change, um, what do you call it, uh, mm-hmm. issue. I think it's going to be, it's it's just a natural thing that it will take some time, just like um, people buying cell phones, you know. It, it, but it's going to increase very, very rapidly once people see others owning and, and enjoying them. It's going to take time. Yeah, I think it will take a little bit of time. I do appreciate the time, Jim. Thanks for that. Uh, Jim Style from Go Electric talking about the city's uh, plan or thought process heading into the next 20 or 30 years because there's certainly that movement to foot. And even I saw a note in the, New, I think it was the New York Times, talking about how uh, the day of the carless uh, society is upon us. And I don't think it's going to go that far, especially here in Alberta where you've got all these, especially out in the rural but if you can develop a plan where, hey, I don't have to pay for gasoline or insurance or that kind of thing, hey, why wouldn't you? But again, there are some people who can't do it. I, rightfully so. One of our texters saying, hey, my my equipment for being a mechanic is heavier than a smart car. Yeah, you're probably not going to want that smart car. I think a mix is going to be the best thing going forward for us. And especially if you can figure out a way where, hey, one vehicle is your standard gas power or maybe even a hybrid. And then one's a gas uh, is a, a full power one. Why, why not? Some food for thought there. It was a quote that caught my eye over the last week or so from Chris Varco, dueling views on energy and pipelines to dominate election battle. The quote was from Chris Bloomer, the head of the Canadian Energy Pipeline Association, saying, We would wish that pipelines wouldn't be the central point of an election, but we are where we are. I wanted to expand on that a little bit, so we welcome Chris Bloomer into the program today. Hello there, Chris. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. I had to laugh looking at those comments and thinking, he's got a point. I mean, you guys didn't necessarily want to be the focal point for an election campaign, yet here we are. So the question becomes, what do you think Albertans should be keeping in mind as they go to the polls and as they go through the different uh, different platforms and that kind of thing about the industry and about pipelines? Well, I mean, certainly with pipelines and, and the comment that we don't want to be the, the focal point of an election. We want to be, we're, we want to be safe and boring. Um, and... Um, you know, every time an election comes around, we don't want to be, uh, you know, the subject of, uh, you know, great debate. We don't want to see after every election things change again. Uh, that's very difficult uh, when that happens. 
One of the things, too, that I, I've really talked to a lot of friends about because there's I've got a few buddies that are in the industry who sit there and go, we just need to change a government, then I'll get my job back. And I don't think it's that simple. And judging by what you said in, in that piece is it's really not. Well, we wish that there was a magic wand for all this and, and, and it would be all over and we'd be back back to uh, doing the business that we that we do so well. Uh, but there's still a lot of process uh, that's going to happen that is happening right now, irregardless of the elections, uh, around pipelines especially when you look at Trans Mountain and, and where that's at. And there's obviously a lot of talk, too, that it's not just a provincial issue. This is a federal issue. And so even if we do get a change in government here on the provincial scale, there's still a lot of conversation that needs to happen on the federal scale. Very much so. This is not all about Alberta. It's all about Canada uh, with respect to the energy sector, pipelines, and resource development in general. We've got uh, a bill in in, uh, in the federal realm, that uh, Bill C-69, that's, that's very problematic, um, that uh, may or may not get resolved before the, uh, the election is called there, too. So there still is a lot, a lot on the table, a lot to be gone through. But here's the challenge, though. It's, it's still... Uh, a lot of uncertainty around our industry, and we've had a lot of lost capital around our industry. And that capital is not going to come back until it's clear that we're open for business and that we have rules and regulations that enable development to proceed um, when, it's, when it's necessary. What would you say would be a signal for, hey, we're back open for business again? Is it a matter of a lot of different things that need to happen? Or do you think that there's a couple of short-term things that can get the industry back on board with what's going on here in Canada? Well, the key thing is for, for um, people looking at investing in, in this sector is that where, where is the growth and can we build things to grow? Certainly getting Trans Mountain uh, shovels in the ground, uh, so to speak, uh, moving forward, that, that commitment there, and the other uh, pieces of infrastructure uh, moving forward, that, that definitely is a signal. Uh, and getting the regulatory system into a place where we can have certainty and clarity uh, is, is very critical, too, because they're going to say, okay, great, um, those projects are moving ahead, but what about the next projects? Uh, companies aren't, gonna, aren't going to uh, drop a billion dollars on the table uh, for a hope and a wish of getting, getting a, a project through. They're going to want to know that there is a process that's fair, that's clear, and provides some certainty either way. Is it enough for a provincial government to be barking at the federal government the whole time? And there's been a question as to whether or not the the Notley government has been uh, as vocal as it should be. And Jason Kenney has been very much with the UCP saying, hey, we need to be barking at the door every every time. Does that do more harm than good in your books? Or do you think that there needs to be a lot more push from the provinces to the feds to say, hey, we got to get a little bit more clarity? on all levels of government well we do need to get that clarity and i think you know it's uh, that we do need to hold the federal government accountable 
to assert its jurisdiction, to be very clear on, on where this resource fits in terms of, uh, uh, you know, Canada's future. Uh, we need a strategy, and we need to be uh, part of the development of that strategy going forward. Um, certainly the province has only got certain things that it can do to uh, push push forward. Uh, industry has, has to do its thing, too. Um, so, you know, it really is something that, um, you know, all parties have to realize that we have to get better clarity around where this industry sits for the future. Our message uh, needs to be uh, heard and resonating with uh, Canadians, people in Canada, and, and globally. We try. Um, we need to really emphasize that we are the best in the world at what we do. We are a sustainable energy supplier. We are safe, especially in the case of pipelines relative to other things. And we need to collaborate around making sure that message is heard consistently and clearly. How do you get over that hump of a lot of talk has been about these well-funded organizations that are standing in the way and that have a little bit of pull when it comes to politics? How do you overcome that hump? Do you need to fight fire with fire or do you think that there's another way of going about it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it's not a fairy tale that we have these outside interests that are influencing uh, certainly environmental policy, regulatory policy, uh, challenging the industry. Uh, you know, pipelines have, have been the nexus of all of that. So it's not a fairy tale. That's a real thing that needs to be addressed and dealt with. Um, these these uh, groups and, in, and down to the individual level need to be held accountable for uh, for what they're doing, and we need to challenge them. Is there a way to uh, even the playing surface so that everybody's got a say and that not everybody ha- or some smaller groups have more influence than others? That's a really difficult question. Um, we're a free society. Uh, it's free speech. Uh, people can can protest. They can put forward their opinions and so on. Um, that's That's the balance that we have to achieve. Um, and we have to make sure that there is the ability for people to put forward their opinions and so on. Uh, but, you know, in areas where there's a concerted campaign um, against something that's undermining something that's fundamental to the, to the health and well-being of the country, we need to take another look at that. Does that transcribe into making sure that you guys are being as open and transparent as possible when it comes to the benefits, not only from an economic perspective, but also maybe even highlighting more of the scientific stuff and being more uh, outgoing that way? I know even back, say, a decade or so ago when when you were fighting the, the tar sands gnomer, um, there was a lot more of a push to say, okay, here's here's what everything looks like now when you look at northern Alberta as an example. So do you need to go a little bit further from an industry perspective that way? Yeah, we, we need champions for this industry that will, that will help us to demonstrate that. Um, as I said before, we are the best in the world. We do have a great story to tell, and we need to make sure that that story gets out there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Chris, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Appreciate your interest. Chris Bloomer from the Canadian Energy Pipeline Association joining us here on Calgary today. It does speak to how a small number of people have a ton of influence. And there's been a video that has been making the rounds on social media over the last little while uh, with actress Jennifer Lawrence. And I'm going to play a little bit of that video in about half an hour's time because, frankly, it is astounding 
how little influence public input has on decision-making processes stateside. And I thought, man, oh man, this is really starting to sound a lot like Canada. And as we go into this provincial election campaign, it does beg the question, who is funding what? Who's saying what? So we're gonna, I'm going to air a little bit of that for you coming up near the end of the show today. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Let's get on to a little bit more serious stuff, in particular when it comes to this election campaign. And already a lot of questions being raised about, can I vote? Where can I vote? All that kind of thing. And it feels like there's some misinformation being thrown out there. And I feel like this guy's been taking a lot of questions and a lot of phone calls lately. Drew Westwater from Elections Alberta joining us to maybe give us a little bit of what we should be getting ourselves ready for heading into the April 16th election. Drew, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure to be here, Joe. What do you think is the number one issue that is being called into your office since the writ drop last week? Um, this week, at least, um People are calling in to find out what the rules are for voting, whether you have to be registered to vote before you can vote or whether you can uh, uh, bring identification to your poll with you on Election Day and, and uh, fill out a declaration form and get added to the poll and voting there. Uh, they want to know what the rules are about voting uh, to clarify that. What are the rules? Um, you just have to be an eight, eighteen year old, eighteen years old, a Canadian citizen and a resident of Alberta to be eligible to vote. Um, if you've voted in a previous election in Alberta at the provincial level, or you were enumerated in September of last year when we came door to door across the province, knocking on your door to find out who lived there, who was a, an elector, we'd have added you, you to our register of electors. Once you're in the register of electors, we generate, once the writs are issued, a list of electors to be used in the polls, both the advanced polls and the regular polls, uh, when people go to vote. Uh, when people are on that list of electors, all they have to do is show up at the poll, uh, give their name and address. The, uh, re- the electoral official there will hand them a ballot, they'll vote, and they'll leave the poll, and they'll be in and out of there in no time. If they're not on the list of electors and they haven't registered in advance, they have the opportunity, if they, as long as they have uh, authorized identification with them, which can be government ID with their name and address and picture on it, or two pieces of ID, both with their name on it and one with their address on it, and complete a, what we call a declaration form, which is they'll, they'll add their name and address and gender and date of birth and things like that, uh, we will add them to the list of electors, and then they'll get a ballot and vote just like anyone else. Do you need to, or how do you find out if you're registered or not? Uh, on our website, you can go to www.elections.av.ca and uh, go into that site. It says, am I registered to vote? There's a button there. You click it in. You can put your name and address in there, and it'll tell you you're, you're registered to vote or no, you're not. And you have two options to register in advance. You can do it online on our site when you're in the website, on our voter link site. Or you can choose, you can call our call center at any time from 8.15 to 8 o'clock, Monday to Friday, or 10 to 4 on weekends at one eight seven seven four two two eight six eight three, and we'll be happy to register you. One of the questions that's popped up on my social media streams is, oh, I'm not going to be allowed to vote because I haven't registered by now. So is there a deadline on when you can register before you're not allowed to, to vote in the upcoming election? Uh, before it's 8 o'clock, close the polls on Election Day. You can go. You can register any time up till then. So you can basically do it right up in, you know, five minutes before you go to the polls. You can, in theory, do it right then and there. Yeah. The difference is that um, if you want to be on the voters list, the cutoff is, is the uh, Saturday before the advanced polls open, which is this Saturday. Then you'll be named, if you register now before Saturday, your name will be on the list of electors, and you won't have any issues. If it's after Saturday, then you'd have to go to the poll 
and actually fill out the form, take ID with you, and get added to the list, and then you can vote. Have the rules changed at all since 2015 on that front? No, exactly the same. Yeah, and, and that's been one of the points of contention I've had is I don't think the rules have changed over the last, I don't know, forever, it seems like. But you said you heard it right from the horse's mouth on that front. One other co- a line of questioning I had for you, Drew, while we've got you on, is surrounding uh, signs. Are there rules and regulations around the signs and the use of for the political parties as they go about uh, hammering on doors and, and putting on those signs on sidewalks, that kind of thing? That's an interesting question because you've asked what are the most of the calls we're getting in our offices uh, since the Ritzman rush is- issued, and a lot of them are about the election signs. There are uh, restrictions and, and, and re- requirements that the parties and the candidates have to fill in terms of the information that's on the signs. They have to have an authorization statement that who's, who's paid for the sign and a contact uh, number for the electors to call if they have an issue or concern with the sign. Um, so that has to be on. That's the only thing we control. In terms of the location of signs, if it's on private property, uh, the candidate or the party would have to get the permission of the private landowner to get the sign on the property. And if it's on public road allowance or whatever, they'd have to follow the municipal bylaws for where they can put the signs and location and things like that. There's one other thing. We're getting lots of calls about um, uh signs that are stolen or, or ripped apart or destroyed in some manner, mm. uh, that's, a, that's a criminal offense. That's, that's uh, illegal, and that would be, have to be taken up with local police force. We have no authority over that sort of thing. Drew, I appreciate some clarity on those three particular topics because I know they're hot-button ones uh, right now. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure to talk to you. Drew Westwater over at Elections Alberta giving you the 411 on what you can and can't expect heading into this election campaign. I'll openly admit, I, I've said this time and time again, I'm really split. I was, re- I was really split on this election campaign, and I don't intend to tell you how to vote. It's up to you at the end of the day. You determine what your... Uh, what the most important issues are for you, whether they be the economy, whether they be uh, education, health care, or maybe it's some of the things that have been coming up about the UCP as an example. And I know that a lot of people are going to town over the latest thing from the UCP surrounding gay-straight alliances. One of the things that came across my desk over the last uh, few days has been a post on social media about represent us. And the face of this has been actress Jennifer Lawrence. And here's just the introduction to the video. If you're anything like me, you may find yourself constantly overwhelmed by everything that's wrong with politics. And when I say politics, I'm not talking about Democrats or Republicans. I'm talking about the flaws that exist in our political system, regardless of which party is in power. And I know it's hard to talk about politics these days, but look, the government is ours. We pay for it, so it needs to work for us. And right now it doesn't, and I mean it really doesn't. So what's going on here? Is it Russian meddling and social media? Is it him? Is it her? Referring to Trump and Hillary. Those two were the least popular presidential candidates since they began keeping track of such things. Only 4% of Americans have a great deal of confidence in Congress now. Just 4%. America is no longer even considered a full democracy. We are witnessing a total political system failure in America, which is the complete opposite of what our nation's founders had in mind. Now, from there, she goes on to a graph that shows 
public opinion poll findings over 20 years is one as the bottom part. And then the vertical part being the chance that Congress will actually pass legislation to support that public opinion. And here's where that video went from there. If there is zero support for a law, there's about a 30% chance that Congress is going to pass it. And if there is 100% support for something, the most popular thing ever, there's still a 30% chance that Congress is going to pass it. So the line is horizontal because no matter how much support there is among average Americans, there's still a 30% chance that Congress is going to pass that law. Princeton determined that the preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near zero, statistically non-significant impact on public policy. How in the hell does that happen? Consider this. Politicians are spending up to 70% of their time raising funds for re-election after they get into office. Why? Because in order to win a seat in the Senate in some races, you would have to raise $45,000 every single day. 365 days a year for six years to raise enough money to win. Now consider that only 0.05% of Americans give more than $10,000 to politics. And then you see why politicians have become completely dependent on the 0.05% of Americans, billionaires and special interest groups, who fund their campaigns. Meanwhile, you've got lobbyists writing our laws and donating to the politicians who pass them. We have a two-party duopoly of Democrats and Republicans that makes it so that independents can't win, while the American people are leaving the major parties in droves. Now, here's the thing. This isn't just in the U.S. This is a Canadian problem as well. It's why I'm not a big fan of party politics, to be honest. It's all about how to get votes, a.k.a. money. It's not about actually serving the electorate. Otherwise, I think you'd actually see more fiscally conservative, social libertarian ideologies leading the pack. That's why these parties thrive on this divisiveness that we've been going through over the last, I don't know, last probably few decades here. It's time for us to think outside the box in politics. Frankly, social and economic issues are not mutually exclusive. It's amazing to me to think how many people have been commenting about this to me lately about, oh, it's all about the economy and social issues can take a backseat. Or on the flip side, it's all about social uh, issues. The economy can take a backseat. No, we can do both the same, which takes us full circle on today's show. We can be better than this. I hope we can be better than this. And we need to have more wholesome discussions, please. This is for the future of our province. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.